We'll be in Exodus 9. We'll be looking at the seventh and eighth plagues tonight, Lord willing. All right, let's pray for our time and our study. Lord, I'm thankful. Um, thankful for our time. Lord, I pray uh, that the Spirit would bring clarity uh, as I teach. Uh, clarity both in the teaching itself and in what is heard and in how that is processed. Lord, I, I confess that there's, I'm sort of overwhelmed by all of the imagery and all of, um, all of the depth uh, in these uh, verses tonight. And we could, we could spend weeks on, on just a, a small portion of it. And so uh, I pray by the work of the Spirit, we, we would look at what you want us to look at and that we would not be distracted by things that... Um, Maybe should be saved for a later time. I'm, I'm really not sure. And I just trust you completely as, as I teach. Um, Lord, I pray that, um, that we would be informed by the word. I pray that you would sanctify us in the truth and that you would make us more Christ-like ultimately um, as we study, as we learn, as we reflect, as we pray, and as we worship. Uh, Lord, as we had just sung a song about um, clinging to the cross and how there's nothing in us that, that really begs acceptance, um, but you're full of grace. And uh, we see this in, in the way you deal with your people Israel uh, and their oppression of Egypt and how you were aiming to free them and make your power known. So I pray that you would inform us in that, and I pray that we'd be encouraged in it. Uh, we love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Exodus 9, uh, 13 is where we'll start. Before we do... What is the current condition of Egypt? Plague infested. Plague infested. Yeah, it's not much of a tourist town right now. They are not um, kicking back and loving life so much. Um, what's the current condition of Israel? Oh, they're fine. They're over in Goshen enjoying a blood-free, frog-free, gnat-free, fly-free, live livestock, non-boil zone there in Goshen. Um, as we dive into these plagues, note again, as we have every week, the first three plagues interfered with the comfort of the Egyptians. Uh, not having water to drink because that water is blood would be interfering with comfort. Um, uh, not having room to sit because there's frogs in your seat would be comfort, and gnats are annoying as well. The second three, they struck the possessions. The Lord struck the possessions. And then in the third three, which is where we're going tonight, this um, uh, in plague seven and eight, we really begin to see desolation and death. So uh, we're getting into the desolation and death plagues tonight. Be encouraged. Uh, They're severe. They're meant to have great impact, uh, even a few thousand years later as we sit here. Uh, brief reminder. We're to listen closely to the Exodus story because it's our story and God calls us in Psalm 78 verse 4 to tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. So pay attention because you're supposed to tell this to people, namely the coming generations. Experience it. Climb into the story. Import your senses as we have done in the previous weeks. Remember it. Tell it. Consider the blood. Consider what it was like to have to dig for water and then have magicians turn your clean water into more blood to prove a point that they're awesome. 
Consider what it's like to have frogs everywhere. Consider what it's like to have gnats crawling all over you and in your nose and your eyes and your ears and in your children's noses and eyes and ears. Consider what it would be like to have devouring flies, biting flies everywhere. Consider what it would be like to have your livestock killed and to be covered in boils, boils. Also consider what it would be like to be in Goshen where you're not experiencing those things, but you're seeing them and you're seeing the Lord's power in a very, very mighty way. Import your senses, consider these things. And what is God's aim in all of this? What's his aim in all of these things? What's he wanting to do? To glorify himself? Show his power. That's a, that's a, that's a very um, significant point. He, he's doing two things. He's showing his power. And what else is he doing? Yeah, he's showing the Pharaoh doesn't have power. And who is he freeing? His people. So two, two main things that are going on here. Are he's showing his power and he's freeing his people. Um, keep your finger in Exodus. Turn over to Galatians 5. I want to look at this briefly. And again, I'm really trusting the Spirit to guide us and not let us get bogged down in areas we don't need to get bogged down. But there is so much imagery here. God is doing these things to show his power and to free his people. And I want us to see the correlation between God's power and our freedom and how we live accordingly. Galatians 5, uh, verses, uh, verse 1 actually, uh, says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For us, God's power is shown in our freedom from sin. Christ died on the cross, and you don't have to live a life to sin. You don't have to present your members to sin for more sin. You present your members to, to God for righteousness. And so for us, we've been freed from sin. Uh, we're no longer in bondage to this eternal damnation, this eternal separation from God because of Christ, and his power is shown in our freedom. In Galatians 5.13, it says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. If you turn over to 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter 2.16 Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And then in verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endured sorrows while suffering unjustly. There is, um, I want us to see that you have been freed from sin and the freedom that we experience as God's people is very much like the freedom that is being granted to the Israelites, that it shows God's power. So when you live in such a way where you're not, you're not submitting to sin, but you're submitting to the Lord, you are putting God's power on display in a way that's sort of hard for us to wrap our minds around. But be mindful of it as we look at our text. Turn to Exodus 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning. Have we heard this before? Okay. Present yourself before Pharaoh. Have we heard this before? 
Okay? And say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Here we go. Which plague is this? What's the number? Okay. Uh, I want us for a moment, maybe a few moments. I don't know how much time we're supposed to spend on this, but consider the steadfastness of Moses and consider it in, in light of your own life. Does Moses know how many plagues there will be ahead of time? Has he been given a chart or a spreadsheet showing what to expect? No. Does he know the content and the severity and the effect of the plagues? No. Does he know exactly what's going to happen? No. Does he know what the Lord has in store? Yes, he does have some insight into what the Lord has in store. So here's what I want us to see. How would you feel after being the guy to communicate the third upcoming plague? Like you just went in and you said, okay, the Nile's going to turn to blood and all the streams. And you go, go home. You got a bowl of water. It's going to be blood. You're that guy. Pharaoh hardens his heart. You go in and you say, there's going to be frogs everywhere. And it happens. And it's horrible. Pharaoh hardens his heart. On the third one, with the gnats, you're going, okay, there's going to be gnats. At that point, would you start being weary, maybe? A little bit like, really? Again? And then on the fourth one. And on the fifth one. Then on the sixth one, and then here, he's going to go in for a seventh time, early in the morning, presenting himself to Pharaoh, saying, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. At what point would you personally become weary of doing this same thing over and over, not knowing, is it going to be eight? Is there going to be nine of these things? Is there going to be 37 of these things? Is this just going to go on until I die? What is this? I think something worth noting here is Moses' steadfastness. What's the source of Moses' steadfastness? His faith in God? Explain that more. That's exactly right. What, how does his faith in God help him to be steadfast and keep doing what God says, though he's not sure if this is, you know, we're halfway through the plagues, if this is the last one or what? How does his faith in God help him to be steadfast? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what that's the definition of? In- insanity. That's right. <laughs> Doing the same thing over and over and expecting the same, uh, a different result. Yeah. That, that would be the definition of insanity. So at some point you begin to grow, grow weary because you feel like you're going insane. Um, so faith in God says, if God says to do this, even if it doesn't make sense in my mind, I'll do it because I trust the Lord. It may look insane to other people, but I trust the Lord. Where was Moses before God called him? Out in the desert. Why? Yeah, he killed a guy. He's a murderer. Um, And so he's in exile. And when when God said, Moses, you are going to lead my people out of Egypt, was Moses like, that's right I am. No, he was a big pansy, timid, whiny. He actually ran out of excuses. He was like, I don't talk good. And he goes through and has one thing after another. He runs out of excuses. And then finally, when he runs out of excuses, he just says, can you just pick someone else? 
Like he doesn't even have an excuse. He's just like, I don't want to. That was his final plea to the Lord. And now he's on the seventh plague here and he is boldly going and being steadfast and doing what the Lord tells him to do. Before he was timid in exile and he was not bold. In Acts chapter 11, you don't have to turn there, just listen. Barnabas, a man described in 1124 as a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, he sent to the church in Antioch. And Barnabas, when he sent to the church in Antioch, he gets there and this is what he tells them. He he says, uh, it says that he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That's what I see Moses doing, and that's what I see each of us called to. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be turning to a lot of places tonight. Which is good, because God breathed out the Bible, and we would never complain about such a thing. 1558. This is the church in Corinth. Was the church in Corinth a pinnacle of faithfulness and goodness and clarity and faithful living? No, they were boneheads. They were getting drunk uh, on the communion. They were fighting with each other. They were suing each other. Uh, The church in Corinth was a mess. And this is the call to the church in Corinth in 1558. To the beloved brothers, therefore my beloved brothers... Bunch of boneheads, but beloved. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Do you operate like that? Steadfast, immovable, abounding in your work, knowing that if it's in the Lord, it's not in vain. As you're hearing those words, are you encouraged that I'm doing the right thing? Or are you saying, man, I stink. I'm bumming. I, that sounds great. Like, I have that kind of conviction when Ben talks about the three-mile-an-hour walk. I stink at it. I'm a sinner, and I have to really work at that. And what I'm seeing is, like, I'll hear him talk about a three-mile-an-hour walk, uh, like every other sermon, it feels like. And I'm like, yeah, that's a fantastic idea. It's very biblically sound, and I stink at it. Steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Turn to James 1.12. James 1.12 says... Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. A source of our steadfastness is our love for the Lord. Because we love the Lord, we remain steadfast. We remain immovable. We are encouraged to not not give up and to not end up in the ditch regularly. Um, here's what I want us to see in this. And I, as I was reading this, I'm seeing Moses, and I'm, I'm really personally encouraged by him just continuing. You remember the message that Ben preached a couple weeks ago? That big, I, I, we had a staff meeting this week on our membership renewal Sunday, and it was from 2 Timothy 3, 
And it, but as for you, continue. And I, I told Ben, that is the most lame yet profound point I've ever heard in a sermon. Everybody gather up, reach down with everything you got, trust the Lord, and continue. Like it's sort of this anticlimactic, like really, that's all? Like don't raise the bar? Like don't really try to shoot for excellence, just continue. But I think there's something in that, this continuing, that helps us to remain steadfast. And I see it in Moses. The seventh plague, get up early, just like you did on the last six. Go out to Pharaoh, that hard-hearted jerk, just like you did for the last six. Say to him, thus saith the Lord, just like you did for the last six, and he will harden his heart. But tell him, thus saith the Lord, let my people go that they may, that they may serve me. I see steadfastness here. And what I'm getting at is this. If steadfastness and perseverance are commanded of us, then God is not indifferent toward my steadiness or lack of steadiness. You hear that? If steadfastness, if he says, be steadfast, if they're commanded of us, God's not just indifferent if I'm not steady. He's not indifferent if my life reflects a regular pattern of being all there one moment and in the ditch the next moment. That's not living in a manner that is considered steadfast. If I keep a pace that lends itself to this unhealthy pattern, I'm actually perpetuating a misrepresentation of God. All throughout the Old Testament, God is steadfast towards his people. God is steadfast towards his purposes. God is steadfast towards the kingdom. God is steadfast. God is steadfast. Then comes Christ. He is crucified. He is risen. It's a fulfillment. And we are then called to be steadfast as he is steadfast. Be holy as he is holy. And we see that our steadfastness is a reflection of the character of our God. So if you're not steadfast and you live a pattern, a pace of life that lends itself to a pattern where you're there, you're there, you're there, and ditch, I'm in the ditch. And after a few weeks or a month or two, I'm back and I'm there and I'm there and I'm in the ditch. That does not rightly represent who our God is. To put it another way, if you are 110% only 75% of the time, that's not steadfastness. Does that make sense? We're not all math majors, but go with me on this. <laughs> if you are 110% only three-fourths of the time, then that's not steadfastness. The ditch that I keep talking about ending up in can be explained as any form of ungodliness or disobedience. Many men and women are too easily overwhelmed because their pace is not one of steadfastness. Many of us sitting here now are way too easily overwhelmed because we don't keep a pace of steadfastness. We keep a crazy pace where you go 110, 115, 150 miles an hour all the time until you just say, and I'm done, I'm, I'm useful to no one, I, I'm not going to serve well. I don't care about faithfulness right now. I need to go on a vacation. And then what happens is you decide, you know what? It's time for a family vacation. Let's go to the beach. And the first four days on the beach are completely miserable because you have to like unplug from the craziness that is your life and you can't enjoy any of your vacation because you know it's going to end soon. And you're going to have to go back to this crazy pace that does not lend itself to steadfastness. I'm just speaking hypothetically. I've never experienced anything like this. <laughs> 
I really want us to be better about this three-mile-an-hour walk. I want us to be steady. There are things in your life that are time wasters, and you need to figure out what they are and be done with them. It might be giving up a hobby. It might be something good, like I'm not going to say serving the children's ministry because everyone needs to do that, but uh, it might be something good that it's not a bad thing, but it's just like, you know what? I can't do that because if I give this time to such an extent to where I don't have any time in the, like what happens when you don't have regular, solemn, quiet, solitude time in the word and in prayer? If you never have that, it's going to be forced upon you because you're going to be sick of everybody. You're going to say, leave me alone. I want some solitude. And that's not the most faithful, God-honoring way to go into a time of solitude where you've essentially told everyone to, to be gone out of your life. There is, um, consistently faithful. There's so many pastors that stay at one place for three to four years and they go to the next because you're not, they're not keeping realistic paces in their life that lend to steadfastness. There are marriages that there's a new trend right now that there's so much focus on the kids and you're a thousand miles an hour and then the kids graduate high school and you have two people who are empty nesters and they're looking at each other like, I don't even know you. Our life revolved around the kids and it's been this crazy pace for like 20 years. I don't even know you and frankly, I'm not sure if I like you. And you see people divorcing after 20, 30 years of marriage thinking, how does that happen? Well, you're keeping this pace that doesn't lend itself to steadfastness and you're not steadfast and you end up in the ditch. And the thing about ending up in the ditch is that it's not a steady thing. Have you ever driven your car into a ditch? It's not like, there's one tire, there's another tire, here it comes. Ooh, we're sliding a little bit, and I think we're in the ditch. It's something happens, and you look up from the ditch, and you say, what am I doing in here? That's exactly how it is with you spiritually. You end up in the ditch, and you're on your back, and you're thinking, what am I doing here? Or you don't even realize you're in the ditch, and you have to have someone tell you. It's like, hey, dude, what are you doing? You're not serving. You're not being faithful. You're not doing the things you're called to. Get up. Let's get out of the ditch. This is not an abnormal thing for us. It's pretty regular. I don't want us to be a body of believers who are easily overwhelmed. I want us to be a body of believers who are steadfast. Who ask the Lord, James, I'm loving the first chapter of James right now. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But don't doubt. If you're, if you're not sure about the schedule you're keeping and the pace you're keeping and if it lends itself to steadfast, say, Lord, Please give me wisdom in this. You don't go to the Lord with your wisdom and say, check out my plan. You go to him and say, I need wisdom. I don't have it here. This doesn't feel like a pace that lends itself to actual steadfastness and perseverance. It feels like a pace that seemingly glorifies God for 75% of the time, and then I spend 25% in the ditch. What's that all about? God, I need wisdom in this. Show me where to spend and be spent gladly. Am I being spent on souls or am I being spent on just projects? Am I treating people like projects or am I thankful for my relationships? When someone calls, do I get annoyed that they're bothering me or am I thankful for my opportunity to talk with them and love them and encourage them in the truth? If someone asks you to serve, okay, last week, confession time, last week, I'm keeping this pace that's just not good, and I'm at home, and I'm trying to study from home, which is difficult. I'm learning, 
And don't set up in the middle of the living room if you're going to office from home. Y'all want to know that. Um, it doesn't work at all. But anyway, I'm officing from home. I'm trying to get some stuff done. I'm trying to study to prepare the people for a work of ministry. And uh, Lindsay's like, hey, can you help the girls brush their teeth? My response was, oh, come on. <laughs> to brush their teeth because it's so hard. They're, their little teeth are so hard to brush. And um, she didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. But that night, she very gently offered, you know, <laughs> if we're at a point where helping to brush the girl's teeth is so hard, maybe we consider our pace or whatever. So I was already looking at these things. That was just one of those times where God's like, yeah, you just grunted over brushing the teeth of a two-year-old and a five-year-old. So um, I say all that to say, I, I want us to be a body of believers who are steadfast, immovable, and that those don't seem like foreign concepts to us. And I don't want three-mile-an-hour walk to seem like silly. It's not. The life of a gardener, it's, it's not ridiculous. Our culture says it's ridiculous. Your boss will probably tell you it's ridiculous, but God says otherwise. Exodus 9, 14. We're one verse in. We are making progress. Uh, 14 through 21. For this time, I will send... So he's, this is what he's saying to Pharaoh. For this time I will send all of my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very, hail, very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock that weren't killed in the plague. It's a little confusing to me. Don't get caught up on it. And all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Were you troubled by the big raindrops today? Hail that kills cows. That's what we're talking about. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord, whoever feared the word of the Lord among the uh, slaves, or um, I'm sorry, uh, among the servants of Pharaoh, hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. What's repeated in those verses? There's a phrase that's repeated. What is it? In the earth. Do you see it? Verse 14, that there is none like me in all the earth. Uh, been cut off. You would have been cut off from the earth. For this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. What does God aim for the Egyptians to know? He is God, his power in all the earth. And God's going to do this with hailstones so that his name is proclaimed in all the earth. So my question is, how does an unbeliever's knowledge of God's power result in God's name proclaimed in all the earth? I'll say it again because it's confusing. And I wrote the question. How does an unbeliever's knowledge of God's power, like so that they may know my power, how does an unbeliever, a Pharaoh's knowledge of God's power, result in God's name being proclaimed in all the earth? 
Say that again? Absolutely, they'll talk about it. Hmm? Yep. Yep. We're going to see the attention of his servants even more so here in the next few verses. Yeah, what I'm getting at is that the very thing that they reject is the very thing that others will accept. It's not like those who reject the gospel get a different version of it and those who accept it get the right version of it. It's the same truth. It's rejected by some and accepted by others. So if we have here unbelievers, non-believers, the unbelieving ones, seeing the power of God and the result being that his name is proclaimed in all the earth, they're seeing the power, they're saying his name, yet what they're rejecting, others are beginning to accept in a new way. And so I want you to keep your eye on that as we continue studying because it's pretty interesting. The very thing that they reject is the very thing that others will receive joyfully. God is making known to Pharaoh in this repetition and warning that not only does Pharaoh not have dominion over Israel, Pharaoh doesn't even have dominion over Egypt. That's a new thing for the Pharaoh. He's revered by all. The Nile fills up with blood, and the natural instinct of an Egyptian citizen is to look to the Pharaoh and say, what will you do now, Lord? Oh, God, Pharaoh, how will you save us? That's what they would do. But what he's beginning to see is he doesn't have power over Israel, who is enslaved. And he doesn't have power over Egypt either. Why? Because there is one Lord who is king over all the earth, and he's making his power known in mighty ways right now. Verse 18 says, such as has never been seen. Real briefly, there's some who look at just Egyptian secular history. And if you study just Egyptian and secular history, there's plagues, there's locusts, there's flies. There's even interesting issues with Nile water turning red. And they'll use that to say, well, those are just natural occurrences that are being embellished by zealous followers of Christ or God. Um, but God makes the point here. He, he doesn't try to hide that. He's saying, these hailstones are going to be bigger. Yes, hail is a normal occurrence here. What's about to happen is not a normal occurrence. Yes, there's been some things that happened to the river. But when I turn it all to blood and then you go home and the bowl full of river water and your home is full of blood, you'll know it's altogether different. Yes, you guys have seen flies before, but not devouring flies that cover everything. Yes, you've seen locusts before, but God's taking it to an exponentially greater level to have this effect that's pretty devastating to show his power. So some would use those truths to try to say that this is not true, but God's saying, yes, you've seen this before. This is hell as has never been seen since this country was founded. So, this is also the first time that God offers a form of relief or shelter. What must they do to find this refuge? Refuge from the hailstorm. What must they do? What? They have to believe him. And what, what is the, the word there? Those who What? who feared the word of the Lord among the servants. Now, we're talking about Egyptians here, right? What I'm getting at is to find refuge, they have to fear the Lord. Don't turn there, but if you're taking notes, which all of you should be. Psalm 31, 19 says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. 
Those who fear the Lord take refuge in the Lord because they know that whatever else they fear is not going to trump God's might. And so there's this picture here where fear and refuge go together. For them, at that point, they had to fear the word of the Lord, and those who fear the word of the Lord would take refuge. They would get into a building, and they would take their livestock in, and they would call their servants in. Those who didn't wouldn't take refuge because there was not proper fear. If you don't properly fear the Lord, you will not take refuge in Him. You will not seek shelter in Him and His ways and His design and His purpose and His will. You'll reject it like some of them did, and we're going to see what happened to those who rejected it. Proverbs 14.26 says, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. For many Egyptians, there must have been a hope that Pharaoh would eventually figure something out. For many Egyptians, they were hoping, okay, Pharaoh, come on, this is getting bad. You've got to figure something out. But for others, they were beginning to see that Pharaoh offered little or no relief. In fact, the magicians themselves verbalized this to Pharaoh. This is the finger of God. What are you going to do? So I'm wondering what this looks like practically for us right now. What does it look like to have a right fear of the Lord, which results in refuge and shelter? What does that look like for you in your daily walk, your three-mile-an-hour walk? What's that look like? Fearing the Lord rightly and having refuge in that. Even more particularly, fearing his words. What are some words he's spoken to you that you have to fear them to take heed to them, and then the result is refuge and shelter? Yeah? Yeah, trusting in his promises sums up a big bunch of them. What are some of the promises you trust in that result in shelter and refuge? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Heeding God's warning to flee from sin and put to death the deeds of the flesh would be a sign of that. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. He gives the warning. There's promises with it. And you take uh, shelter and refuge. Storing up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. If you find yourself desiring to be rich, you'll fall into many snares. But if you store up treasure in heaven, there's shelter and refuge from the snares of desiring to be rich. This happens all over the word. Uh, The fear comes in the form of heeding the warning and the refuge is from the desolation, heartache, and death that comes from trading the truth about God for a lie and seeking relief and joy in things that simply cannot deliver. That's what we do when we sin. We say, God says this, my flesh feels this way. I'm going to do this. You're trading the truth about God for a lie and you're seeking joy, you're seeking relief, you're seeking shelter, refuge, It might be refuge from just going without something, the feel like you're going to have satisfaction in this, and that's just sin. But if you do what the Lord says, you're guarded from all the heartache and junk that goes along with sin. Verse 22. 
Yeah. Or the more we would fear him. Yeah. 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 That's that Ben's sermon on this upcoming Sunday is going to be about how, well, one part of the sermon, not the whole sermon, is going to be on how the disciples walked with Christ. They saw his humanity. There's this thing of, you know, familiarity breeds contempt, but not with our Lord. With our Lord, I mean, they walked with him and saw his humanity, yet the doubting Thomas, which we're going to talk about Sunday, he, he was the one to confess, my Lord, my God. That was such a, a proclamation, and it's the same with, with God. It's the, familiar, the familiarity doesn't breed contempt. As he makes himself known to those who are believing, it breeds faithfulness, and it breeds a greater trust, which goes hand in hand with a right fear of who he is and understanding what he's proclaiming. Look at verse 22 and 9. 22 through 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation, just like God said, the hail struck down everything that was in the field and in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Like, climb into the story. What's this going to look like? How terrifying is this? Both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Psalm 78 talks about sycamore trees. I found that they're pretty enormous trees. They can get to be 130 feet tall. That's a big tree. And every tree of the field, only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. If there was no hail, that means there were still people alive, animals alive, trees alive, bushes alive. But where there was hail, there was not. So for a moment, imagine being an uninformed and unwarned slave. Like each household had their own slaves. And if they heeded the warning that had been given by the Lord, they would tell their slaves to come inside because a big hailstorm's coming. But for those who did not fear the Lord, they didn't give a warning. So imagine for a moment being an uninformed and unwarned slave, working miles away from the house in the field, maybe with some of the livestock that's still alive, maybe trying to get the most out of the vegetation because it is so limited right now because of these plagues. Consider the fear of hearing that first loud thud, just that loud something big hitting the earth and looking over and seeing one of your last living cows dead with a huge block of round ice laying next to it. Then to your right, a huge 130-foot tall sycamore tree seems to explode from the impact of another one of these Volkswagen-sized hailstones. Your instinct is to take refuge and find shelter. But the reality is that death itself is already upon you. And with the next hailstone, lights out. That's what it was like. It's pretty sobering. And why? 
Because that's what it took for hard-hearted Egypt to know the Lord's power and that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. When the storm ceased and the owner of the property went to walk the fields and survey the damage, towering sycamore trees smashed to pieces every dead plant and even human remains of once loved and appreciated slaves of the household would serve as a display of God's unshakable might and those who didn't heed the warning. Is this sobering? Yes. Look at verses 27 through 28. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go. And you shall stay no longer. It's an interactive study. So, so has it happened? Is Pharaoh officially sobered up? No. I remember as a younger guy, the first time I read this, I was like, sweet! What are these next two plagues going to be? Because Pharaoh's like totally repenting. I didn't realize what was going on here. This time I have sinned, as opposed to the other times? This is the difference between regret and repentance. Though my sin is just as bad right now as it was at the beginning of this process, I am really bummed out about these devastating consequences. That's regret. He's not repenting. He's not turning and he's not obeying the Lord and what the Lord commands. (laughs) Look at verse 29. (coughs) Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city... I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease. There will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. In case you didn't catch it, you could have been smited from the earth. Pestilence could have wiped you from the earth. The Lord is making his power known in all the earth. And you will know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. So he's saying, you'll know that the whole earth is God's, but you'll not actually fear him. You will still harden your heart against him sinfully. Verses 31 through 35. The flax and the barley were struck down. This we'll come back to in the next chapter. And the barley was in the ear, the flax was in the bud, but the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they were late in coming up. So there's still some seeds in the ground that haven't sprouted forth yet. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord and the thunder and the hail ceased and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again, hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. The seventh verse is the same as the first verse. Seven times now. Look at chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. The Lord is not bashful and embarrassed about his conduct. He's saying, Tell your grandkids how harsh I was with Egypt. Make sure they know about the huge hailstones that crushed people. Make sure the grandkids hear the sweet story about the frogs and the blood in the Nile. See, what's being 
said here is that God reminds Israel now that the point is not just that Egypt knows the power of the Lord, but that Israel too would know it and proclaim it to the coming generations. God is saying, I am the Lord as opposed to a God. Look at verses 3 through 7. It's pretty gutsy. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? When you're sinning against God and setting yourself against his people, you are lacking humility. Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left (laughs) to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? Now, this is a big point. What does it mean to say to Pharaoh, the Pharaoh, that Egypt is ruined? Yeah, it could be a death sentence. What else does it mean? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's an insult to his leadership. It's an insult to his godness, which doesn't exist. Imagine going to the CEO of a company and saying, your company is done. Whoever he is, he's probably going to take it the same way. Like, really? Okay, that's offensive. Here, they're saying Egypt is ruined. Pharaoh, who's over Egypt, it's ruined. It's a turning point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be, it would be interesting to know how many actually died um, and how much is left because, well, let's see what the locusts do. Look at verses 8 through 11 first. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? So he does this thing where he's like, Okay, enough's enough. Y'all can go. But real quick, who's going? Who's leaving? As if it's a question. Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. <laughs> In case there's any question, that's everybody. We will go with our sons and our daughters and all in between. And with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord. That's what you're asking. (laughs) Don't you love it when someone tells you that's what you really meant? And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. I love this. Moses and Aaron make a defining statement here. Our worship is a family event. I love this picture here. Our worship is a family event. It is not customary or right for us to go and worship God without our wife and kids. A feast to the Lord is incomplete without my sons and daughters. This picture here is beautiful. He could have said, okay, that's something. We'll try that first. That's not what God said. God said, they're all going. Now, verse 10 shows another level of Pharaoh's evil heart. The Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. 
How does Pharaoh view the little ones? Collateral. You're exactly right. I'll hold on to the little ones. Go ahead and go worship. That's an evil dude. Viewing their children as a means to keep them tethered to Egypt when the very God of Egypt, God of Israel, God of all the earth, who's made his power known, says, let my people go. And he's saying, now we'll keep the kids as collateral. And then what does he accuse them of? Evil. Isn't that ironic? You guys have an evil plan, don't you? Oh, I didn't know there was only room for one. After making such an evil statement, the Pharaoh then accuses them of evil. And then like any power-hungry chump, he tries to explain what they were really asking for and what they really meant. He puts words in their mouth. And then finally comes the locusts because he did not humble himself. Listen to verses. Well, look at verse 12 first. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. Now remember in 931, the flax and barley were struck down for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud, but the wheat and ammer were not struck down for they are late in coming up. This is really cool. What this means is God had seeds still in the ground that by his divine power had not yet germinated and sprouted and broke the soil surface for the single purpose that the locusts would have something else to eat. That's a God who pays close attention to the details. In case you've missed it, this is a picture of total domination. (laughs) Egypt is a world power. Egypt's not some peasant village. They've faced seven severe plagues and there's still something left. That's a big country, big nation. However, the plagues are growing more severe and God is aiming to show total domination. If I had reverb on the mic, that would be a good time for it. Verse 13. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon all that, that all upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land of Egypt so that the land was darkened. Why is Egypt so dark? Oh, there's locusts everywhere. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees and all that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. That is a significant plague. I thought the hailstones were bad. This is really significant. Egypt has an area of over 387,000 square miles. 387,000 square miles. That's about one and a half times the size of Texas. That's how big Egypt is. Locusts can eat their own weight daily. So take all these and put them together. If locusts completely cover something, they're likely to have it eaten within a day. A very small part of an average swarm of locusts eats the same amount of food in one day as about 10 elephants or 25 camels or 2,500 people. That's a small swarm. What what are we dealing with here? A dense swarm as had never been seen before and would never be seen again. The point is, this is a vast amount of locusts. This is desolation upon desolation. 
Try to imagine driving all the way through Texas and never seeing one green plant. Not one. Like you don't realize how much green you see every day. Imagine not seeing one green plant because the locusts ate it. Look at verses 16 through 20. Then Pharaoh hastily, that's funny, called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord, your God, and against you. Flattery. Now, therefore, forgive my sin. Please, only this once. And plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. That's pretty amazing. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Romans 2, 5 through 8 is what we closed with last week, and we'll close with it again. But because of your hardened and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would help us to see the wrath and fury poured out upon Egypt as a warning against our hard-heartedness and disobedience. I pray that we would see your might and we would see your power and I pray that we would hear your words and that we would fear them rightly, fear you rightly, and that we would result, uh, we would the result of that would be that we would live in faithfulness and put your glory on display by being obedient to your word. Lord, I, it's, I don't know, it's easy for me to kind of look at Pharaoh as just this chump. I even called him a chump tonight in the study, but I'm, I'm so prone to such hard-heartedness. I'm, I'm prone towards wanting my own way. I'm prone towards a lack of humility. And I just pray that we would see this in your breathed out word and that we would heed the warning. I pray that we would ourselves be broken hearted over the absolute desolation that you brought upon Egypt. Lord, it's hard for us to picture these things in our head. That many locusts, that big of a hailstone, People dying from the hail. Gnats and flies. Frogs. Blood. Lots and lots of blood. It's, it's really hard for us to understand that. So my prayer is that you would sanctify us in the word. That you would allow us to not view this as a fable or a fairy tale and a land far, far away long, long ago, but that we would heed the warning that we see in Scripture that we would not harden our hearts. Lord, you, you are very real and very mighty and very powerful, as is beyond our understanding. Your word says you are great, you're greatly to be praised, and your greatness is unsearchable. I pray that we would leave here thankful and made bold at the greatness and might of our God, yet humbled at how small we are in comparison. 
I pray that the result of that would be that we would see our great need for a Savior and that we would cling to you every moment of every day. Lord, your ways are higher than our ways, and we have a hard time understanding them sometimes. And I pray that you would give us understanding. We love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.